0: I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. And I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for for being a listener and hanging out with me. so, The code podcast 10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com. Your next order of protein powder, you can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. We don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrated that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean organic cacao. And the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit. And it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it. If I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, And I also love it in my baked goods from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you want to give either of these proteins a try, or you've already been purchasing these proteins and want to take advantage of this special deal, the code podcast 10 is going to get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com. Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in.
1: Welcome back to the show. Today is a very special episode. We are celebrating 3 million downloads in less than 15 months. So before I introduce you to today's very special guest, I want to take a minute to thank each of you for having me in your ears every week, for sharing this podcast with your family and friends, and for reviewing it online. The Be Well by Kelly podcast has quickly become my favorite medium. I feel like I can be myself, and it's been so fun to have my friends, authors, doctors, and entrepreneurs on the show. The goal of the show is always to help you learn, grow, feel inspired, and mostly just to have fun. And today is no different. I'm celebrating by sharing Toshin's birth story with my board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Lisa Carmardian. Dr. Lisa Carmardian received her medical degree from USC, where she graduated as a Dean Scholar. She completed her residency at LAC USC Women's and Children's Hospital and is highly skilled in high-risk pregnancies and deliveries. Lisa practices in Newport Beach, California and is a staff member at Hogue Memorial Hospital and has been since 1996. She has received the Orange Coast Physician Excellence Award multiple times and has been named in America's top OBGYN listings. What she might not tell you, but I might, is that she also has delivered some of our favorite NBA All-Stars babies, past and present, and has the biggest heart on the planet. She has healed both Chris and I from the inside out. So without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Lisa Carmardian. Dr. and I'm so excited for this episode. We have been trying to connect and make this happen. And I'm obviously just coming out of trimester four. So I'm so glad that we are able to connect and talk about Tasha's birth story, which was such a healing journey for me. And the whole experience with you is just absolutely wonderful. I'm, I love you more than anyone. And um, I'm just so thankful Thank that you. you're willing to spend some time here today. I'm excited too. I
2: know it's uh, been a long time in the coming trying to uh, kind of coordinate our schedules and stuff, but it's fun to sit down and debrief afterwards and um, to go over things, talk about what went great, talk about what we can do better um, and uh, just kind of celebrate what happened. So yeah, Um, I'm excited.
1: I love it too. And you were equally as busy delivering twins last night. (laughs) And uh, and so I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you got a little rest before this call. And, um, and just, I'm sure that that mom was just as thankful as I am. Twin births vaginally last night. Yes. So many, so many positive birth stories coming out of your practice in your office. It's just, it gives me the chills to think about. And I'm I'm grateful for you, so thank you. Well,
2: it's what it's what keeps us going each day. It's exciting. I mean, it has its highs and its lows, but it's 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 really kind of why I chose this field and stuff because you really get to connect with your patients and um, share some incredibly intimate moments. You know, so. It's
1: the most beautiful day for so many people. I mean, you. Yeah, my husband might say it was our wedding and I might say it was the birth of my children and then our wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's start with your story before we jump into the birth story. How did you decide to be an OB and where did you go to school and what inspired you to have these intimate moments with women?
2: Um, well, okay. So I started off at USC um and uh, and partly that was uh you know I was raised in a pretty conservative armenian family and uh, one of the first women in my family to go away to college and so um it was important for my parents that I stay close to home um i debated between stanford and usc and my parents kind of encouraged me to go to usc um because they just wanted me closer to home and stuff and it turned out to be an amazing experience i um did all of my training there and um, I think for OBGYN gyn training, I couldn't have gotten anything better than that. Um, I trained up at the big county, um, as we used to call it, and at Keck USC, it was the largest teaching hospital in the country, and so literally saw everything that you could possibly imagine um, that had to do with labor and delivery and um, gynecology. So you know, from malaria and pregnancy and any kind of crazy stuff that would come through the door. I trained during the time it was kind of the last before um, Medi-Cal deliveries could be done in outside hospitals. So we literally had the largest volume of any training program around too. So in my um, you know internship year, I think I did over 4,000 deliveries myself as an intern. And so really getting that volume and that experience that you just really couldn't see elsewhere. And then on top of that, Aside from the volume, it's just you know the ability to kind of have a lot of autonomy that you don't necessarily have that early on in your career. So it kind of teaches you to be the captain of the ship and you know to make those kinds of decisions and stuff. So it was um, it was a, a great choice um, and one that I was excited um, to have. I I chose this field because I think in any other um, medical field if you do a really good job and you, you know, treat your patients, then you no longer see them anymore, you know, and they go on from that, whatever that problem was. But, um, OBGYN was unique in the fact that it was more like one of the surgical specialties where you got to do exciting, you know, procedures or say in this case, deliveries, um, for your patients, but then you still followed them for their entire life. And, um, you know, you get to build that relationship. And so for me, I'm now hearing, you know, and seeing some of the girls that I actually delivered myself and now delivering their children. And so it's kind of amazing to be a part of that longevity and to have that whole history with those families. Um, And that's really what I enjoyed and why I chose this particular field. So it's, it's more like, you know, getting together with girlfriends every time I walk in the room and sharing and, you know, just like today, being able to sit and talk with you. And that's
1: kind of priceless. It is to follow the full circle of life and to be delivering babies that you've delivered to children. Like that's, that's beautiful. And I hadn't even realized that, that you are in one of those fields where you just get to spend so much quality time. You hadn't women. realized how old I am, Kelly. Uh, That's <laughs> no. And I, I do want to highlight what you said earlier. Is You had so much work um, at Keck USC and uh, autonomy that you became the captain of the ship. And that was something that I noticed right away. I mean, I have very close girlfriends that I went to high school with. Um, And even earlier in junior high and elementary school that when I made my way back down to Orange County, they could not recommend anyone but you and they all go to you. Um, So they knew my past and they knew my story, but I needed someone to captain my ship. I needed someone who kept up with the research, who knew what we were going to do to make the story be different this time around, who really would be the boss. I think a lot of times when I work with doctors, because I collaborate with them so often, we become more friends. And then they're weighing in on what I want, maybe a little more than they should. Um, And you right away in our first first appointment, when I went through Bash's birth story, you were the captain immediately. And I think that that for me was a safety net and a security. It was like my life vest. And I just... I can't thank you enough for just taking charge and being like the OB mama bear for me because I don't think that this story would be as beautiful as it was without you just going with your gut and taking over. So first of all, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you for doing that for me um, because we need that. Um, I think a lot of us come in with these big birth plans and we want things to go our way. Um, and for someone who knows that it just doesn't always go the way you planned, that taking a back seat in this kind of a um, medical delivery situation can be to your benefit. Um, so I want to encourage so many people listening, if... No matter where you want you know what kind of birth story you want to have, you want a natural at home birth, you want to have a hospital birth, you want to have an epidural hospital birth a natural hospital birth, an epidural hospital birth, a c section. like I think we need to feel empowered to do what what's right for us. But I do think that there is a little bit of a groundswell in the wellness community that there's a right way and a wrong way, and I kind of want to demystify that. I want to bring it back to the beauty in safety and having just mm-hmm. a beautiful, healthy child on your chest, so yeah. I so appreciate you saying that. Um,
2: I think the hardest thing for OBGYNs is to kind of listen to all of that um, fear that's out there um, and to really, and, and whether it's been established in the media or whether it's you know other factors, it, it just this feeling like you, you have to have a relationship where you know that that individual has your best interests at heart. And is gonna do what's best for you. And and you want to take advantage of my years of experience and training and stuff like that. That's not to say that I'm not gonna take some of your what what you want into account. I'm gonna to try to accomplish what exactly what you said, what are the different goals that you have. But I, I I tell patients especially when they come in with this plan, I mean, that in and of itself, just the fact that everybody thinks they have to write their birth plan sets up some kind of a false kind of expectation that this is something that we can plan and you can't always plan what's going to happen. What you have to do is in the moment, do what is best for each step that comes along the way. And that can only happen with years of experience and training and being able to communicate to your patient. And hopefully you have a relationship of trust there that you can understand. And even someone like you, who's highly educated in, in, you know, the medical field to say, okay, this is what I wanted, but this is what's best now. And I think the part that got to me, I mean, when, when you came in a couple of your friends had said, oh, my friend Kelly's going to come to you. Yeah. Oh, we'll let her tell you what happened the first time with her, you know, delivery story. And I, I knew there was going to be a story there, but I think what when I when I listened to you tell me your story, I think the part that got me and I I felt so emotional when I heard is I could see how things unfolded and I could see where you know um, you showed up and probably had a plan for what you thought was going to be your first delivery journey and I think after years of ob experience, you realize that none of this is planned. None of this can be you know, planned out in a perfect scenario of what you want. And I mean, I joke to patients all the time in the room, if I could plan things, um, I would run more on time and you wouldn't be waiting for me. Um, (laughs) Because each room I walk into, you don't know what's, what's going to unfold. And so just understanding that and realizing that, you know, this is not a planned sort of a field, but it's one of those In the moment, you have to be, you know, you've got to be able to quickly shift directions um, at a moment's notice, but always recognizing that the ultimate outcome is healthy mom, healthy baby, and weighing what's the right decisions to make to keep both of those, you know, intact. And so it may not always be what you initially thought was going to happen, but what you want is that, that outcome in the end. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance, it's a balance, but there has to be a sense of trust there.
1: Oh, and I felt so much trust with you immediately. I obviously had a lot of fear coming from coming out of Bash's birth. You know, I wanted to make sure that our second child, we didn't know at the time what it was going to be. Um, our second child, Toshin, uh, our little boy, mm-hmm. second little boy, I just wanted him on my chest. I wanted that skin to skin that I didn't have with Bash. You know, Sebastian was put in an ambulance and taken away from me. And I look back on that first birth and I tell that story in a different episode. So if you guys want to listen, you can head back. But I remember telling you that I had spent 16 hours laboring without an epidural and um, to the point where I was, I was shaking and, and really not in a good place. And my OB at the time was like I really if you want the vaginal birth you need to consider the epidural and I think we need to be willing to pivot from our plan is I think the most important lesson that I learned was exactly what you said um you're ex- you're the expert and let the expert be the expert in regards to keeping you safe and your baby safe and in hindsight when I look back I think to myself if I had just If I knew I was in a fear state when I got to the hospital, I I think I thought I had prepared with hypnobirthing and looking back, maybe I should have done the Bradley method because I love science just to understand what's happening in my body. You know, there are different ways to to achieve that, but I wish I would. See,
2: Kelly, even there, I feel like you're trying to understand perhaps what you could have done different or what you did wrong. And I think for me, that always makes me sad when I hear a patient talk like that because, you have to be able to realize like being fearful in an unknown situation is normal. Okay. It's, it's normal to have, and and for moms to have anxiety when they show up in labor is a normal thing because it's a new experience. And what I like to tell them too is each time it's different. So your second birth story, your third birth story, they're all going to be different. And so I think it's just, what can we do to make you comfortable to allay that anxiety and that fear? Um, but and I think that's where some of the trust has to come back with the medical community, with you know the OBGYN, so that patients you know, can kind of surrender that fear and be able to realize like it's it's not all on you, you know what I mean? Like we need to empower you so that you can be able to, have the experience
1: that you want, you know? Well, I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly what you did. I moved into my third trimester and we started, and I'm going to leave you to the details. We started doing, um, NSTs, non-stress tests, non-stress tests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And about for, because of my traumatic birth with Sebastian and some perineum issues, (laughs) there was a point at which you were like, Enough stairs from the beach to the parking lot at Strands. Enough hardcore (laughs) working out. Let's keep the baby healthy and safe and inside you and... And I took it easy and I just started walking and then we started non-stress testing. So what what's the purpose of an NST? Why did we start doing that? What were you looking for? What can you garner from those results other than yeah, what we see, which is like yeah. just the heart rate going up and down?
2: Yeah. Now that's a wonderful question. So non-stress testing or what we call fetal diagnostic testing is a way for a physician to get an idea of how your baby is coping inside the uterus and how your placenta is maturing or aging and if it's actually supplying the baby with everything that it needs. So we know, um, and I guess I can use your details, in your case, um, you had um, advanced maternal age. Okay. So um, that was a factor um, any women over the age of 35 is considered to be of an advanced maternal age and at higher risk for pregnancy complications. Perhaps it could be you know, because mom has gestational diabetes, hypertension, for any type of what we consider a high-risk pregnancy, or if mom is even low risk, but comes in and says, gee, I have decreased fetal movement. So for a variety of reasons, we'll do what's called fetal diagnostic testing. And the simplest, easiest way to do fetal diagnostics is to combine a non-stress test and an ultrasound that we call an amniotic fluid index, where we look at the amount of amniotic fluid surrounding the baby that tells us if the baby has a healthy environment to move around in. And it also gives us a hint at the placenta's aging process and whether it's you know, providing um, what it needs to to the baby. It gives us a little bit of information on mom's hydration status. And then the non-stress test, you're right, is um, looking at the baby's heart rate in response to movement. And so there are patterns that we look for when we look at that non-stress test. And a a perfect non-stress test will take about 20 minutes. And in that 20-minute interval, you want to see a certain number of what we call accelerations, where the baby's heart rate goes up and above, um, at least by 20 beats above whatever its baseline is. What we don't want to see is the baby's heart rate decelerating or going down or below um, that baseline and um, looking at those patterns, we can get a sense where if baby is showing any signs of distress, if there's any um, premature aging of the placenta, if there are subtle signs to us that perhaps the baby being in utero is it's starting to get to a point where we walk that fine line where maybe being delivered will be more optimal than staying in utero, and it's always best to let a pre- pregnancy continue as far along until you know, Mother Nature, its body's ready to, you know, start the birth process. But what we've learned from years of experience is that there are signs to us with that type of fetal diagnostic testing where we can say, hmm, we can avoid some complications that we see with advanced maternal age with, you know, low fluid or oligohydramnios, um, hypertension, um, different things like that with doing what we call, you know, delivering you at an opportune time. I love that, and so that's why we were we were doing the non-stress testing. And you, um, you know, to be able to, you know, figure out when would be the best time to deliver Kelly. I think a, a, a factor in your first delivery was that um, a lot of the research study shows that the optimal time to deliver a mom in her uh, first pregnancy, most first pregnancies, moms go late, so they go past their due date. So having what we call excellent dating is really, really important so that you um, have the proper visits in your first trimester and you can establish that your dates are excellent. And then when you know that, we know that somewhere between that 40th and 41st week is the perfect or optimal time um, to deliver a mom because uh, baby doesn't get so big that there's a chance that it's too big to fit out vaginally. um, And your body's also ready for that delivery. Um, When you go from the 41st to the 42nd week, the chances of having a C-section kind of actually go up because um, your baby's getting larger, may not fit through the pelvis. So there's a lot of factors that go into play to picking that optimal time. And in your case, you had gone beyond your 41st week. um, 42. Yes. (laughs) um, 8.6 pounds, four hours of pushing. (laughs) Yes. So um, all of those are... (laughs) Factors when you look into, and so you know, recognizing that we were trying to accomplish a different birth scenario than you had um, previously. I knew that delivering you before your baby got to eight and a half pounds and was post dates was going to be optimal, and so those non stress tests were um, our um, sign of what was going to be opportune and. Um, in your case, um, there were some indications on your non-stress testing that particular day that showed us that perhaps, you know, it was time. And I think uh, something that kind of speaks to that was you had a very short <laughs> labor course. So once we got you to the hospital, once we um, started your induction, five hours later, you delivered a healthy baby. So that showed us your body was actually ready and it was time. Yeah.
1: No, it was wonderful. And um can you talk about the and they looked like hash lines on my non-stress test. Um, mm-hmm. and what what we had ended up doing, I think you sent me to ultrasound to look where the cord was and then mm-hmm. after birth we we realized the, the Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, so um a lot of different factors that go in but one of the uh what you know, you often hear people talk about a cord wrapped around the neck, and you know, is that a reason you have to do a C-section? And you know, I I like to tell patients, and I I almost don't like when they hear you know in an ultrasound like, oh, it looks like the cord's wrapped around the neck, because really, uh, we deliver a lot of babies vaginally with the cord around the neck, and you know, there's maneuvers that the physician does to make sure that you know everybody's safe, and you reduce the cord, and that's fine. But our concern is, is if the cord is around the neck. Or even around a leg or wherever it would be, and it's tight. And so, we can sometimes, when we're doing the uh, monitoring of a baby, we can see signs of when you know there's cord compression or 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 the cord is being squeezed. And so, sometimes a cord around the neck or a cord wrapped somewhere can be a problem. Or in other cases, and in, in, in your case in particular, a short cord can sometimes be an issue. So. If cords are too long, babies can get wrapped up in them. If cords are too short, when you're starting to contract or go into labor, or as the baby is descending in those that final um, stage of labor, um, there can be some you know pulling on that placenta and um, you can see signs of um, early distress. And that's because the cord is so short. And so um, those are all things that we look at. And and it, and we were able to have kind of an answer as to why your non-stress testing uh, was looking the way it did, and it was probably because the cord was short. And so, had you had a longer labor, or had you labored where we weren't monitoring things, you know, we might have um, seen more distress than obviously we wanted to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was it was interesting because we were planning to. I I had asked you. Obviously, I didn't want to go as long as I did last time. I really wanted to err on the side of caution. I was really open to induction this time. I just wanted to have someone else have control over my labor, right. and that's what we had planned on. And you were open to that. Can we talk about induction for quote unquote sure. geriatric pregnancies? <laughs> um, and... First of all, I just
2: I, I have <sighs> to laugh. I don't I don't know why, but. I feel like it's more so in this last year. Um, patients are all coming in, they're saying geriatric pregnancy, geriatric, and and I laugh and I say, Who who called you geriatric? Like <laughs> yeah. we've never done that. So I literally, when you had that on your list, these are some questions I want to ask you, Dr. Carmartine. I literally Googled, you know, this morning, <laughs> geriatric, <laughs> geriatric pregnancy because I wanted to know where is this coming from? There's so <laughs> many people using that terminology now. And what I looked up, it said pregnancy at an advanced maternal age, which is 35 or greater, is associated with higher risks and stuff. But it actually said that that nobody calls it geriatric pregnancy. We call it advanced maternal age. And so we've stopped calling it that. Now, I wasn't <laughs> going to tell you how old I am, but you obviously know the age of my children and, and stuff like that. So with my 29 years of experience of doing this, I've never heard anybody call it geriatric <laughs> before. So it's really funny to me that it seems to be like the buzzword now. Yeah. And I think it just sounds really bad. Oh, but in it professional does. terms, yeah, we call it advanced maternal age. And pregnancies of advanced maternal age, which you know by definition is 35 years and older, um but it's funny because if you look at some of the research and stuff now they talk about women 37 years and older and i laugh because because i myself am you know older or geriatric whatever you want to call it and i think to myself nothing really changed with those stats but i think we have so many women having children so much later in life now that we kind of raise the number a little higher like We don't have to worry so much about those 35 to 37 year olds, but the 37 and on is where we'll really um, pay attention. And I think it really has to do more with resources and volume. But basically, as a woman ages, obviously her her fecundity or fertility declines as she gets older, really in your 20s and early 30s is when your body is primed to do this. But you know, women are doing a lot of things now. They're not just having babies, um, and so with work and and um, everything else, they're making those decisions to have their families later on in life. So what we're seeing is a lot of women of advanced maternal age having their children and recognizing that that does put you at risk of preterm birth, low birth weight, um, stillbirth, chromosomal defects, labor complications, higher risk of C-sections. That sounds like a really bad list when I just read that (laughs) off, right? It's like, oh my goodness. And you think about all those things, but okay. So everything we do, I mean, we kind of laugh that, you know, everybody would love to do low risk obstetrics. That's the easy thing. Stand there with your catcher's mitt, catch the baby and everything turns out fine. And, 99% 99% of the time, that's the way it is. And th- it's low risk until it becomes high risk. So those things I just rattled off are... They're things for an obstetrician to pay attention to, um, not a mom to worry about, but then for us to know so that we can help guide you. And so they're all things that can be mediated and you know um, improved by... You know, nutrition and lifestyle, and kind of working and cooperating with your physician. So, um, yeah, I think um, advanced maternal age pregnancies or geriatric um, uh, pregnancies are higher risk. But in our demographic and in you know my practice, they are more the norm. Yeah, um, and so um, it's something that we just have to. You know, work
1: with. Yeah. Would you say that when it comes to advanced maternal age and induction, what is the literature saying in regards to if people so should be there's, induced there's, or not? Yes.
2: Yeah. And, and even, um, there's recommendations specific to age ranges. And so, yes, because we know that the placenta ages more rapidly and a woman of advanced maternal age, all of those factors that I talked about doing the fetal diagnostic testing, all of that comes into play into picking the opportune time um, to deliver someone. And then, so I like to tell my patients that I want to, you know, you want to work with them. So if a patient is doing fetal diagnostic testing, that's where this kind of becomes a little bit of an art and not just a science, but putting all the information together and trying to pick out what is the perfect time we know that somewhere in that 39th to 40th week is the opportune time for a mom of advanced maternal age to deliver but we start our stress testing earlier on and and we do that because there might be indications or those particular cases where maybe intervening sooner would be the case and again if everything is going along beautifully and the testing is fine. Is there room to you know, let a mom go a little further because perhaps she wants to try to deliver vaginally and her cervix is not ripe or inducible. And I think that's the other thing too, is recognizing that not all inductions are the same. Yeah. And so um, I think patients get scared. Um, and there's a lot of misconception out there about induction. And I think recognizing that when you just say the word induction, I mean, you can be talking about apples, oranges, bananas. I mean, there's there's a variety of different reasons why certain things are done. And if you go back to your birth story, I, I almost feel like I really it really wasn't an injection. It was almost an augmentation, right? So you were already dilated, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, The head was already well applied to your cervix. Um, You didn't need any cervical ripening agents or things for me to give you to induce you, okay? So you were inducible, like we like to say. And there's like actually a whole scoring that we have where we look at the consistency of your cervix, the position it's in, how dilated you are, the position that the baby's head is in. And so all of those are factors in determining when that number gets to a perfect point and it's called the Bishop score, then we decide this is an opportune time to induce someone. Now, obviously, if there's some maternal or fetal indication to do it before that, you just know that you're starting with an uninducible cervix and you have a a bigger job ahead of you. But in your case, you were dilated, your cervix was soft, the head was in position. So we... Really, kind of augmented you with Pitocin to get you into labor, and then did that active labor management where we broke your water to then, you know, have you deliver. So there's different types of inductions, there's different reasons for inductions, and you're starting at different points, you know, and I think. As we mentioned, like Pitocin, I, I think Pitocin has a really bad rap out there. Um, and a lot of times pati- yeah, <laughs> pa- patients are like, oh my goodness, whatever you do, Dr. Karmadian, I, I don't want Pitocin because Pitocin really hurts. And I have to explain to patients, okay, where did that concept come from? Um, l- let's talk about this. Because I think when someone, and I explained to a patient, when a patient comes in in active labor on her own, Usually she comes in because she's in pain, right? That's that, that that's your cue to come in. Okay, they're breathing through their contractions, they're five minutes apart, and they're really feeling something, right? They get checked. The triage area, yes, ma'am, you're in active labor. Let's get you a labor room, let's get you moved in there and let's have a baby. Um, nobody ever goes through that process and you know, is like, gee, check me. I don't know if I'm in labor. And you know, I, I don't feel anything. You're feeling something, you know. <laughs> when you're in labor. And so, and that's, you know, patients will be like, well, will I know when these contract? I said, oh yes, you won't be able to talk through it and you'll know. Oh, that's yeah. why your husband will be calling me as you're driving in <laughs> in the car. So, um, you know, you have a sense that something's going on. When someone's being induced and say perhaps if it's within Pitocin or Cytotec or, you know, whatever the method is that we're doing, you're going from not being in labor to being placed into labor and labor is what hurts it's yeah. painful contractions that you know are changing your cervix and so i try to explain to patients that it wasn't the pitocin that hurt it was the state of being in labor or what we're trying to achieve we're trying to mimic you know labor and and get you into that and a lot of times you'll be given these in in agents and then we'll even shut them off. You know what I mean? And that's the beauty of Pitocin over some of the other agents that we use. Um, Other things can't be removed from your system, but the Pitocin is going through an IV and it can literally be shut on and off. Whereas in some cases, that's even scientifically, it's easier for us to manage than a natural labor. Sometimes women will come in and they'll be having one contracted after another on their own and you know, we, it, that's difficult for us to manage or stop. And sometimes it's a little too much stress for the baby. But with Pitocin, we can control how we're giving it, the amount we're giving it, and we can shut it off. Yeah. So that's the beauty of
1: it. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. I'd love to talk about Cytotec for a minute because I know that some people get that too. And um, I, mm-hmm. I believe there are multiple ways to, to use that. To, correct. Um, but going back to the Pitocin thing, I was always afraid of, pit pain. Um, But I had decided based on my last birth, um, my wish was please evict my child at 38 weeks (laughs) and quickly. (laughs) Um, So you were always like, we'll see how you're doing. And I'll let you know when we get there. And I had to wait patiently until I got close to that 38 weeks. And we did swipe my membranes. And then we looked and everything kind of just progressed the way it naturally did. But when I got to the hospital and was finally checked in and hooked up to the Pitocin, I started contracting or when I got checked in, I started contracting on my own. I think it was, Mm -hmm. my body was like, I'm in a safe place. People are safe. I'm safe here. They're going to take care of my baby here. He's being monitored here and everything's okay. And it was amazing because my body just naturally kicked in right after being checked in. And you ended up putting me on Pitocin and Chris was really worried. He was so petrified yeah. of the pain that he saw me go through the first time around. It was awesome. 16 hours for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he didn't want to have anything. To he didn't for forget that. it. Yeah. No, yeah. He didn't. And, I, and I, you have to think about your partner in these situations too. I mean, you both are having a baby together. It's are you, you've been married or you're, they're your partner, but you're, you're starting a family together. And that, that was this time around, I was really cognizant of, of, the toll it took on Chris to watch me in so much pain for so long, and then to watch mm-hmm. the aftermath of me dealing with my son being in the NICU and all the things associated with that. It's you have to look sure. at the whole yeah. picture. And so I remember you put me on fentanyl, and every five minutes, and it was so low. I mean, I was already yeah. starting to track this. And I think that that's the beauty too is you can really yeah. change the dose, and you have so much yeah. control over that. And he's like, "Are you in pain yet? Are you in pain yet?" I'm like, no, stop. We're like, <laughs> I'm, I'm clearing out work emails because I was supposed to be induced on Saturday and it's Tuesday <laughs> because we ended up being I ended up being sent after um seeing those like yeah. Yeah, after yeah. the non stress test. And I love that about you. It was like we had a plan, but you were like, you know what? Nope. I'm taking over. You're going right now. And Chris and I had um packed our bags that day and you would let me know to do that, and just in case you weren't liking some of it, but that was so nice for me because I, I did get the Pitocin, I did start to feel the contractions, but nothing was unmanageable. It's like it was allowing mm-hmm. the body to do its thing and um, and
2: I Well and I think too it's recognizing in those different scenarios. Like I think in your first case you said um, your physician came in after 16 hours and said, I really think you should try to get an epidural if you want to deliver vaginally. And so many times we find patients are their bodies are so tense and they're so anxious or or um, just, I mean, tense for lack of a better word when they're in those early phases. And it's amazing when they'll get an epidural and they'll just completely relax. And then all of a sudden you see this great change in their cervix. And so that's why when patients are like, oh, you know, I, I was told, um, I don't want to get an epidural because I hear it slows things down. And again, I feel like it's, you have to look at the scenario. You have to look at the story that the person's telling you and you have to kind of break it down and analyze it but um in some cases someone's you know given an epidural because they've had such a long labor and they're exhausted and they can't handle going much further and maybe the writing was on the wall that that baby just wasn't going to fit like in your case um, yeah. um with your first but in other times you can use an epidural completely relax and See that you know the the dilation is just you know falls off the labor curve the other direction. It's like whoops, got to get my gloves on. It's it's showtime, you know. So it's um, recognizing what what that patient needs and where she's at, and kind of helping to explain that to her. So I always like to tell my patients um, when they say you know when is the best time for me to get my epidural, and I'll say probably whenever the nurse offers it to you. <laughs> if that is before you think you need it. And they look at me like, What are you saying? And it's like, Well, when you need pain relief or you want it, I want you to ask for it. And so, you know, then obviously we'll have a conversation of whether or not that's a, a good time. It might be too early. Maybe you're asking for it out of fear. There's other things we can do to manage or control pain. But if the nurse is saying to you, Would you like to get your epidural now? That's usually a signal that she's seeing signs that things are about to really take off or escalate and it might be an opportune time for you to do that and so it's recognizing those cues and using these treatments to help afford the perfect outcome like what you want yeah. and so i tell patients you know like if i was a dentist you wouldn't ask me to pull your tooth out without giving you some form of anesthesia for it um do you have to have that no but there's some scenarios like the twins I delivered last night, um, we always like to have some type of regional anesthetic on board with twins because of the risk of second twin flipping, having to do an emergency C-section, baby's heart rate dropping, going into distress. We're not sure what we're going to encounter in a twin delivery. And so I like to encourage patients to have that, especially if I have to reach my hand inside, you know, do a breech extraction, whatever the case may be. So there's certain scenarios where... It can really make a huge difference.
1: Absolutely. And I think if you, I mean, you being informed and, and being on airing on the side of caution and, and safety and just health uh, outcomes. I mean, like that's, that really needs to be the goal. I, I think obviously based on my situation, but it also really is, it can be a beautiful experience and Going sort of back to my birth story, Chris, being afraid of us, me being in fear, you had said, you know, um, I think I was like getting close, like 70% of face. I was like 50% of face or something like that when you sent me over. So we knew we were good to go. I three or three and a half centimeters dilated mm-hmm. already. I was like, let's right. have yeah. this baby. Yeah. And um, so you're right. I mean, it was like you augmented it. Um, yeah. And the Pitocin really helped soften my cervix. And then you were going into a C-section. So you popped over and you're like, do you want me to break... Um, I'd like to break your water. Would you? Do you want me to yeah. break your water now? And Chris was petrified. He was like, she hasn't caught her epidural yet. She needs... Because he was so <laughs> afraid you were going to break my water. And then there wasn't going to be enough time for an epidural. So... I think we probably could have had Tosh in on the 24th of November had he been open to me getting uh, my water. I was like, we can do it. I'm going to be... I, I already did this for six, 16 hours. i will be fine. And he just really asked me not to. So I ended up getting the epidural. And then um, you broke my water. And I watched The Bachelorette in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and we turned it off. We turned off the lights. And Chris and I held hands and kind of just like, we're in the dark for a little bit, and um, and the nurse checked me, and I was still like at that three and a half, but I was going from ninety to one hundred percent face. and in forty five minutes, I went from three and a half centimeters dilated, which is what I was in your office that that morning, to ten. And we had yeah. to call you out of your bed, yeah, yeah, <laughs> have you come catch the baby? So can we talk about? Can we talk about? breaking water and when to use that? Because I have had friends in the past, like I I told you before we started, who were on Pitocin for 24 hours, maybe weren't in the right place to be induced. They called it false labor and they were ready to send her home. Ultimately ended Mm -hmm. up breaking her water. But um, when would someone use that? And I think, you know, I think people are like, don't do that because you're going to induce bacteria or don't, don't do an epidural because it's bad for you and the baby. Can you kind of demystify some of these myths sure, that people sure. have around yeah. these things? Again, I think there's just,
2: it's everybody has a birth story um, and, um, or multiple birth stories. Um, and it's looking at those individual stories and looking at the details. And so that's why when patients will say, oh no, you know, my girlfriend told me this, or oh no, my mom said that, and I'll say, well, tell me a little bit about what she said. Tell me the scenario. And you can generally kind of understand or grasp you know a bigger picture and what was going on at the time. So um, breaking your water or um, you know rupturing membranes as as we call it, is is a form of what we like to call active labor management. And there was actually a lot of research done in Ireland uh, on how to actively manage uh, labor. And what were things that could be done or accomplished to increase the odds of a vaginal birth as opposed to cesarean infection? And, and in Ireland, they have really good uh, you know, vaginal birth rates as opposed to the C-section rates. But again, that's a whole other... We could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> it's a whole conversation about you know, looking at demographics and risk factors and, and things for cesarean section. Um, but when you are actively managing someone's labor, breaking the water can be a part of that. And it's a tool that can be used. And yes, it does hasten. It increases the uterine contractions and it hastens uh, the labor and um, can be very helpful. Again, it has to be done at the appropriate time. So um, looking at the scenario, is the baby's head too high? Is it unsafe to break the water because maybe a cord or, or something else might slip down and, you know, and it's not quite time already, but breaking the water can give us cues as to whether or not there's meconium in the fluid and, and whether or not the baby has had distress. So when your water has been broken, we can also put in special monitors into the uterine cavity and we can actually introduce fluid. So sometimes we'll break water and we'll put an intrauterine pressure catheter in. So because we have maybe been inducing someone because their fluid levels were low, because I talked about how the placenta was prematurely aging or they weren't producing enough fluid around the baby and we want to do what's called an infusion, and we introduce normal saline into that cavity so the baby has a cushioned environment to labor in. So there's lots of tricks and things that we'll do to increase the odds of being able to have a successful vaginal delivery and make things safe so that a baby can be inside the uterus and be tolerating contractions and not getting squeezed maybe too much. So um, there's a variety of reasons why we would break water. Um, But again, um, yes, um, anytime the membranes are broken um, and, uh, and that's happened um, there is the opportunity for bacteria to be introduced into um, the uterus and for baby and mom, um, you know, to, to get infections. And so, um, you want to time that just perfectly so that a mom perhaps doesn't, you know get an infection. and you also want to make sure that if mom say is a beta strep carrier, um and that's a particular bacteria that we look for in the last month of pregnancy, um, you know, it's there's kind of this misperception. People think, oh, what is that when you tell them you know they have beta strep in there. Everybody's flora or body is made up of all different kinds of bacteria, and we just recognize that. Certain bacteria, when they're in the vaginal canal and a baby is um, delivering through the birth canal, um, can cause um, problems sometimes to the baby. So, we're we're not trying to clear your body of any particular types of bacteria, but what we want to do is not introduce certain types of bacteria into the uterus or to have the baby deliver through a vaginal canal that has high volumes of certain types of bacteria. So, again, taking probiotics, there's a lot that we're learning about the microbiome and. That I think is probably the most interesting data and stuff that we have now in our um, area of OBGYN is just learning about your gut health and learning about taking probiotics and learning about how all of that impacts your unborn child and the beauty of delivering through the birth canal of having you know the baby's lungs squeezed and the fluid um, coming out of it and how all of that even impacts Risk of asthma and other issues later on in life. It's really, it's amazing, you know? And so, yes. So, breaking the water is a tool that we use. It can be used to help augment Pitocin. It can be used to help prevent you even needing Pitocin because that alone can help move things along. So, there's a variety of reasons
1: when or how we would do that. Because I never received CytoTech. CytoTech, yes. But I, was told about it um, previously, I think in a birth class up in Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, before Sebastian was even born. I believe it was a dissolvable tab and an intervaginal. Right. Like, so the same tablet can be, yeah, it can be used
2: either. Um, it can be placed vaginally. I love, I love the cytotech story just because it, it's, it's a USC story. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually was a intern and just in my beginning um, years at USC, when um, a maternal-fetal medicine specialist, her name was D Wing, was actually one of the ones who started all of the research in looking at dosing side attack and using it to induce um, labor or or augment it, and it was um, quite a wild ride um, because we started off with a typical dose, and you know and As in most things in medicine, it was kind of like just sort of picked up um, serendipitously like that could this medication, which actually is a medication for um, GI issues and ulcers and stuff that is used, but they found that women who took this early on and not realizing they were pregnant would have miscarriages or abortions. And so they realized that it was causing uterine contractions. And so that was the first clue that, oh, maybe this um, drug, which is otherwise... Completely safe because we use it for women to treat GI issues. If we could give women that drug at the end of pregnancies to stimulate contractions, um, is that something that we could use that would be different than Pitocin? And so um, the beauty of Cytotech is that it is a tablet that you place. We learned under the tongue, or as we found um, with studies, was tolerated the best when used vaginally, and so we you know, started off with big tablets that that got cut in half and then we cut them in fourth because we were finding the opportune dose. But that Cytotec helps to soften and what we like to say ripen your cervix. Um, It also stimulates contractions. And so it's a good um, tool to use early on um, to help get someone to a point where then they can be dilated and then maybe their water can be broken and stuff. So there's a variety of uh, reasons. But Um, For patients who have a firm, unfavorable cervix, that's something that we like to start off using. Interestingly, we found that this medication also helps to contract the uterus down. And when moms are having issues with postpartum hemorrhaging or bleeding, we use that medication again. So we found a variety of uses for um, this medication and it's um, become one of the mainstays that it's really kind of been a game changer for us to be able to... Um, use it to prevent women from hemorrhaging, needing blood transfusions, things like that, and then also on the other end, um, you know, to help establish labor. Um, the drawback with cytotech is obviously that once that tablet is dissolved and in your system, it's in your system. So again, the one of the beauties of pitocin um, is that you can shut it on and off um, because of that IV route. And so, um, you don't have that same sort of control with side attack, And so you have to weigh whether, you know, which which agent is the right one for the patient.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I was really happy with the way that I was induced, obviously, because I did have a healthy baby on my chest within five hours. And we had that beautiful skin to skin moment. And really the room was quiet and it was when you came in the room, I think I had. I know I had two contractions and four <laughs> pushes and I had a baby. Um, at one point you looked at me and you were like, slow down. <laughs> I, think I, felt, I think I felt like I, I needed to push as hard as I did last time. And as people heard my story, the time obviously with Sebastian, I had broken every capillary like in my eye, in my face. My face was red and bruised yes. days after right. my birth. Like it wasn't for lack of effort that it took to get him out yes <laughs> uh, and in this time around it was you know he came out upset <laughs> that was funny <laughs> he was it we always said was I remember Chris and I went on like our first date in forever um and we had gone to Malibu farm and we decided to name Tosh and Tosh and Patrick which is Chris's middle name and Chris is really artistic and Toshin is after an art publisher and um like a world world renowned art publisher, but um... we had named him. And then I remember Chris just being like, I just want to hear him cry. Like I want to hear him wail and scream. And then we couldn't even talk because he was yelling so loud. (laughs) You got your wish. (laughs) We got our wish. We got our wish. And the things we got to worry about were the things that most parents get to worry about. Was not like the health and safety of our child, but was, you know, making sure we filled out our birth certificate information, right. And making sure that I was healing right. And what were we going to, order from DoorDash to our postpartum room <laughs> and we got to worry about the things that most parents worry about like will these nurses stop coming in and bar- bothering us so we can actually get some sleep we're not going to get any from here on out <laughs> so it was yeah. it was exactly what we wanted and such a beautiful moment and i do remember like being full of tears and looking at you and just like being so beyond grateful for a healing really healing moment for me. Um something that makes me want to continue to have my basketball team of kids. You know, three, four, (laughs) five. I mean, we'll see what Chris is up for. But I just, these babies are such a gift, these children. They're they're a blessing. Thank you so much. And um and now I'm gonna cry, but we just like (laughs) we had like a really You're making me cry. (laughs) We we just had such a A beautiful birth story. It was really healing for Chris and I. And um, Tashin, you know, he's our little healer and Bash is a basher and he challenges us every (laughs) single day. Um, And he's so much fun. But Tashin is, you know, you have two boys, like their personalities are so different. different. Yes. And What what we get from each of them is so different. And Tashin is my he's my cuddle bunny. He's my little smush. He's my boyfriend. Like he, I'm a pushover for him because he he healed me the way that he did, and you facilitated that for us. And I just I couldn't be more grateful. I I can't thank you enough. You're welcome. I'm gonna You're deliver welcome. all my babies. So. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm here. I I have my catcher's mitt on. <laughs> okay. Good. Um. Well. That being said, if someone is thinking about having children back to back, if they're having, um, if they're later in life or post, mm-hmm. you know, advanced paternal age like myself, um, what are some things, what are some postpartum support? What should we be thinking about in regards to timing between children? I know you and I talked about postpartum PT, hyaluronic acid suppositories, telling me to, So much to
2: talk about. Yeah, we we can keep (laughs) it
1: short. We can do like your hit list. Well, we'll, we can have you back when I'm getting ready for (laughs) getting ready for (laughs) number three, pregnant with number three. Um, But are there any like top line things that you want moms to consider? If they've they've had a baby, what are some resources that they have? And when should they be thinking about?
2: Yeah, and I think you and I have talked about this. Our, our group, uh, we like to call ourselves PACLA or Pacific Women's Healthcare Associates. You know, we have been working during this last year with COVID trying to develop some more dedicated and customized programs for women to address all of their needs. I think we saw a lot in this last year during the pandemic. There was a real beauty to for our pregnant families to just kind of slow down. And um, there was a lot of good that came out of some of this isolation, and a lot of beautiful what we saw bonding um, between uh, moms and dads and babies, and um, really getting back to maybe a, an older kind of lifestyle uh, where we kind of slowed down a bit, not having you know a hundred people in the delivery room and things like that. Really created for some. Very beautiful moments where dads got to kind of be themselves and got to really participate um, without a bevy of maybe other women in the room, you know, drawing attention to a tear in their eyes or whatever the case may be. So, a lot of that was really good. I think patients started to um, do a lot of self care, um, pay attention to their nutrition and things like that. Um, But then I also think um, on the other end of it, you know, postpartum especially, I think isolation, you know, can really um, have its toll. And so while I think it's important to cocoon a newborn, you know, during those first six weeks and to make sure that they're in a safe environment, I think one thing that we recognize is in and, and an area that's really being looked at now is what we call trimester four. And looking at that postpartum period. And I think if you look at women in Africa or even some of the Asian and Latin American communities, there's really more of a sense of community as a whole, um, with an entire culture of families kind of coming to the aid of moms. I think a lot of patients are, you know, aware of what we call doulas now. And and that word actually came from the Greek where it's mothering the mother and 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 providing aid. For uh, postpartum moms. And so I think um, being able to anticipate physical and emotional needs of moms in this fourth trimester is really important. And I think looking at ways to help moms rehabilitate, you know, postpartum um, PT, to look at the pelvic floor and things like that, recognizing that vaginal dryness is an issue, sexual intimacy can um, have its you know, roadblocks and stuff when you're breastfeeding or, um, you know, have scar tissue and things from a vaginal delivery. So just anticipating all of those things and having resources available to the moms. But I think more importantly than anything else is just recognizing that this isn't something that you have to do alone or that you should do alone. I mean, it really does kind of take a village, um, so to speak. And, and I, I think more so than in any other um, time, you really need to look at you know, the resources available to you and to be open to reaching out and realizing that you're not alone. Um, and in no other cultures or places um, are women expected to go through this time alone. Um, they really have a lot of help. And um, we need to make sure that those resources are available to moms um, so that it's, readily available to them. So I think that's the most important thing is is um, speaking out, letting your healthcare provider know what your needs are. And it can be as simple as just offering advice um, as to postpartum, just easy nutrition and, and, and being able to get the right amount of rest and things like that. But Or, you know, down to as intimate as, you know, looking at, like we talked about, the hyaluronic acid suppositories that are a natural way to deal with vaginal dryness, um, you know, lactation support, you know, things like that.
1: Yeah, I absolutely, I echo what you're saying. I think for me personally, um, not as much after this delivery, but after my first, obviously, I reached out to a, a family and marriage and like, family therapist that was for trauma and loss. Mm-hmm. I had my mommy and me group. Like these were the things that I think I would be falling apart if I didn't ask for help. And I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, have, you know, a, um, a, a, a kind of like breakdown of, of what my birth story was with my OB. And was, I had things that I needed to do to get through. I had a lactation consultant yeah. come to our house because I had Bash was being fed TPN and then he was given given my breast milk in a bottle, but he had never learned how to latch. And it was like at six and eight weeks that we were really working that out. And I needed major support. So gosh, I mean, I I completely agree with you. I think in the postpartum, especially their first time around and you don't know what to expect, like asking for help and reaching out and just knowing that, especially in my mommy and me, just telling our birth stories, telling what we're going through. It was always like, what's going great? Right now, what's going? What's not going great right now? And the right now is always mandatory because nothing lasts for forever, and that it was a, pro, a, a stage in which we all needed to get through. And so, I love that you encourage people to reach out and ask for support because there are so many things going on and so many changes. And I love that you're such a resource for me and that you've become a resource for my community. I just, I love that we've got the chance to introduce you to them today. So um, thank you for being here and sharing so much great information. I'll definitely, I know that people will be so excited about this episode and want to hear more and to have you back. And we'll, we'll find time for that the next time around. Um, But for anyone listening, where can they follow along on social media? Where can they find you on your website? Um, Where at Hogue, all the good stuff. Our our group Pacific Women's Healthcare Associates can be
2: found online at www.pacwha.com. I do have a very limited um, (laughs) social media presence um, on Instagram, um, Dr. Lisa Carmardian, And... We practiced out of Hope, Newport Beach. Um, So we exclusively do our uh, deliveries at the Newport Beach campus so that we're always in one place and ready um, and not going between the different campuses um, for our patients. But yeah, so just practicing here in Newport and um, looking forward to continuing to help grow your family. Yeah, I can't wait. Well, I can.
1: I'm still, I'm <laughs> so still, you're still the, sleep deprived. I'm still in the throes of sleep deprivation, <laughs> but we're working on it. So um we'll keep you posted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, gonna get through 2021 before we go there Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, well. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you so much. I'm so, so excited we were able to find the time to do this. I hope you have a nice restful day. I know you worked overnight last night and we just used your brain for over an hour. So I appreciate you so much. and love you. And I can't wait to see you again. I'll see you at my, uh, at my yearly. Yes. I'll see you then. Thank okay. you. All right, honey. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers.